todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Jim Birkenstadt is the author of Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, and The Beetle Who Vanished. He's known as the rock and roll detective, and it's a title well-earned because not only does he get down to the truth of several strange rock myths and legends, he leaves no stone unturned, so to speak. And when it comes to laying out all the facts, maybe he should also trademark the name Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Cue the rimshot. In any case, I'm happy to have him on the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast, so let's get Jim on the line. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Stacey. I'm uh, honored to be on your show. Well, first of all, I have to know about your work uh, as a historical consultant on Martin Scorsese's documentary about George Harrison, which I watched. Um I'm wondering, how did that come about? Did you know him before? Or were you introduced? No, uh, actually, it started because I started uh, working for George Harrison while he was still alive in the late 90s. Uh -huh. And uh, so he got to know me. And of course, his his uh, wife, Olivia, and son, Danny, got to know me. And they saw the work that I had done for George, uh, both before he passed away. And then after, after he passed away, uh, Apple core, the Beatles company started hiring me to help them on various, uh, documentaries and box sets and things. And then Olivia Harrison also continued to, um, hire me for different historical aspects for the box sets, uh, and documentary films that she was putting together. So I was a known quantity to Olivia and she actually, she asked me to sort of give her a list of things that I felt were important to continue to spread George Harrison's legacy down to future generations. And one of my suggestions was, you know, I think a, a documentary film 
done by the family rather than having it being done by some third party that doesn't really know anything or could get a lot of, you know, make a lot of mistakes or, or not portray George uh, as he should have been, you know, because they don't know him as well. Uh, you know, I just said that would be a great starting point. And then, you know, maybe a couple of years after that, um, Olivia approached me and asked me if I'd like to be uh, the consultant to Martin Scorsese on that wonderful documentary. It's called George Harrison, Living in the Material World. I think it's on uh, HBO or what, which is now called Max. But it's it's uh, definitely available online. It's also, I think, still a DVD as well. Yeah, it's really fantastic. And I think you can add rock and roll archaeologist to your titles there because there's so much information that you delved into. Now, what does a historical consultant do exactly? How does that work? Is Do you go through it after they've cut it together? Or do you work with them during the processing of the interviews? Or how does that happen well it's really before during and after ah, okay. um, so at the very start one of the things that I did was to put together a kind of a I guess I would call it a, a timeline of George Harrison career highlights things that I felt were important not just you know winning awards and things but you know uh, things such as the concert for Bangladesh and how you know and to explore how important that was as really the first superstar rock concert that was where everybody donated their time and their talent to raise funds for the for the people in Bangladesh. You know, things that were that he did for the world, I think, were um, of, of great importance. But people maybe didn't know because George Harrison did not toot his own horn. Um, you know, he started the spiritual uh, material world foundation and he it continues to run today and it's helping people in in great need all over the world. Uh, so, so I started out by doing the highlights. Then uh, I received something like six notebooks, spiral bound notebooks of different film clips and audio clips and things that they were thinking about. And they asked me to look through those. And, and one of the one of the main things they wanted was we want this to be fresh. We we want it to not only entertain the casual fans, but you know, for those hardcore Beatle and George Harrison and Traveling Wilburys fans, we want them to see fresh material. So I went through these things, and then I uh, was I they would fly me to New York, where I would sit with the editor and look at these various clips and things, mm -hmm. and. Their big question was, have you ever seen this before? And that happened at one point. There's, there's a great clip. It's in the film, too. George is sitting in a TV control room, and he's watching an old black and white clip of the Beatles performing, and he's kind of laughing, and he's making fun of John Lennon wearing glasses. I think this was 1963. Uh -huh. um, and I said, oh, my gosh, I've never seen this. I said, I'm guessing that this clip was misfiled at, at some location and was never broadcast on uh, television anywhere in the world. And they said, how could you possibly know that? Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, you know, when, when you've been following uh, an artist your whole life, you know, since 
the 60s, you've pretty much seen everything there is. And so they were they were thrilled because this was a found lost footage and it um, it really conveyed an important part of the the movie. And it was funny because they said, you know, what time period do you think this was? And I said, looks like 1976 based on the sweater that George is wearing because he wore it in the uh, Cracker Box Palace video or something like that. Uh -huh. and, wow. Again, they, they laughed and said, okay, well, that gives us a good start. <laughs> um, well, the book has so many um, interesting stories in it. I want to talk about the book a little bit. Um, there really are so many uh, mysteries surrounding famous rock bands and musicians. So I'm wondering, how did you narrow it down to the ones that you do cover in Mysteries in the Music Case Closed? So, uh, yeah, in the book... I did look at a number of different mysteries that I, you know, wondered about. And the, the tough thing is because so many mysteries happened so many years ago, a lot of the people are no longer alive who would right. be the eyewitnesses. And so there are some cases where I found a really interesting mystery, but you know, there was just no one left alive, you know, in a band or, or or people who worked in the studio or whatever. So since the goal of this book was to close the case, to solve the case, which there's so many books and TV shows out there called Unsolved Mysteries. And I think that frustrates people, you know, here's a mystery, yeah. here's another mystery. But, you know, here's what could have happened and here's what might have happened. So I wanted to do something a little unique and different and actually solve these cases. So I had to narrow it down to the ones where there was still information left out there, whether it was documents or people or, or whatever, so that I could uh, get to the, the bottom of these cases. And so, um, you know, for example, the Masked Marauders chapter, um, you know, Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone was still alive, uh, and it deals with a Rolling Stone record review. Glenn Johns, who was involved in that story, uh, who was an engineer for the Beatles, the Stones, Led Zeppelin, he was still alive. Um, you know, so a, a lot of it has to do with, you know, really, when you're dealing with history so long ago and you're trying to solve the mystery, you know, are people still around and can you still find some documentation? And that I think is also one thing that sets your book apart from others that might be a bit similar is that you want the extra mile to find people to give you quotes for this book. So there's a lot of fresh information. Mm -hmm. I love the story of the Mask Marauders. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I had never heard of it before. And you brought up an in interesting point about how it kind of went viral in the 60s. Um, so I'm wondering, what is yeah. it about stories like these that some, you know, catch fire and everyone's mm -hmm. talking about it and then others don't? So what is it about the mask marauders that caught the public's attention in the 60s? I think, first of all, you have to, uh, people need to know that um, Rolling Stone magazine was pretty much the Bible uh, of rock and roll and that and the pop culture of that time period back in the uh, 1960s. And, you know, we had no cell phones. We had no Internet. We had very little television, usually three or four channels. 
And they weren't focused at all um, on, you know, there was no entertainment news, which came later. There was no MTV. They just were focused on, you know, today there was a fire down the street and we put, the firemen put it out. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was kind of what it was. And it was a very sort of black and white era. So uh, along came Rolling Stone. And for those of us who were really into music at the time, that, you know, that was sort of the place we would go to find out what's going on in the world. So so first you have that going for them. And and then you have this uh, factor that Bob Dylan did, in fact, uh, run into Glenn Johns and uh, Jan Wenner at the airport. And he talked about this idea of forming a super group with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So you have um, something that's based in reality. And the, and the bands actually did vote on whether or not to do this. That's That came from my interview with Glenn Johns. Uh-huh. And the other the other thing to remember at that time, and again, if you didn't live through it, you might not know this, but the book, my book talks about this. Supergroups were all the rage in 1969. And, uh, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Blind Faith, uh, all these, these groups were, everyone thought this is so cool. All our favorite people are are leaving each other's bands just even temporarily to form supergroups. Oh, okay. And so, you know, what better news to see in Rolling Stone magazine than that the Beatles, Dylan and the Stones have have recorded the greatest supergroup album of all time and they've called themselves the Masked Marauders. So very mystical, mysterious with the name. Uh the fact that it had been secretly recorded in Canada. So um I just think all of those things caught fire, but catching fire and going viral in 1969 was going to your school and talking to your friends, you know, at recess or something (laughs) or in the back of the classroom because the class was so boring. And you're saying, did you see this story about the mass marauders and Rolling Stone? And so a lot of things went, went viral, if you will, just from kids talking about it uh, at school. And and the other interesting thing about that chapter is that uh, I think is interesting is that Bob Dylan did get to be in perhaps the best super group of all time in the late 1980s uh, when the Traveling Wilburys were formed with Bob and George Harrison, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, and Jeff Lynne. Yes. Yeah. That all comes full circle. Um, yeah. yeah, so I learned a lot from reading your book, but I'm wondering if you uncovered any facts during your research that surprised even you. Yeah, you know, one of the things, there's a chapter about whether the whether the Beach Boys actually stole a copyrighted song from cult leader and murderer Charles Manson. I'd say one of the facts that surprised me was, is that Dennis Wilson allowed Charles Manson and several of his female followers to move into his home, you know, just on a, he happened to pick up two of the, two of Manson's uh, gals as hitchhikers and he brought them home and he hung out with them. And then he went off to, to a Beach Boys recording session. When he came back, Charles Manson invited him into his own home, into Wilson's own home and had just set up, you know, living there. And so, that was surprising. And then that Dennis Wilson, you know, spent his own money, about $100,000 back in 
around it was around 1969 or so that you know i don't know what that's probably a quarter of a million dollars today with inflation but he spent that money on uh food and medicine and and uh, he gave he he let them use his sports car which they totaled and crashed uh gave all this money to manson and you know what we know now about charles manson i'm sure dennis wilson didn't know it at the time and uh, it's interesting that I learned that Dennis Wilson had already met the Maharishi, the same guy the Beatles went to India to uh, learn meditation from. And so I think to Dennis Wilson, this was just another case of, oh, I, I've met another giggly guru that, you know, is kind of an interesting guy. And he 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 just picks up a guitar with and learns two chords and just suddenly has all these words coming out. So then Wilson spends his own money to let Charles Manson go into the studio and record demos of these songs. So all of these strange things that surprised me then led me to dig into the question of one song where um, Manson later claimed that the Beach Boys stole that song from him. And, uh, you know, just these things intrigue me and when people are still alive i can i can still dig into them and find out what happened the other thing i should mention too is a, you know many years ago i was a trial attorney and so as a trial attorney you have to really dig into both sides of the case your own and your opponents to really know you know figure out what the truth is before you even go to trial and um, you learn how to um, tell the difference between witnesses who are credible and those who are lying. That and locating documents, that sort of thing, really those tools have really helped me do what's a lot more fun, which is digging into rock and roll mysteries. Yeah, that does give you an edge. And I think that that comes to the fore in one of my other favorite chapters and stories about the Kingsman being investigated by the FBI over the lyrics to the song Louie Louie. Now, that really seems to have spiraled out of control. I mean, you uncovered how much the government spent investigating this crazy. Yeah. I think it's crazy. Um, you know, I'm wondering, yeah. do you think that could still happen today or was that just a product of its time? Oh, it absolutely could still happen today uh, with the FBI spiraling out of control. Um <laughs> Just back to Louis Louis, that case happened simply because the FBI director didn't like long haired rock and roll bands. And uh, he called these rock bands merchants of filth, which I think would make a great rock band name. If somebody oh, yeah, named it would. <laughs> merchants of filth would be pretty cool. But um, I don't want to get too political here. Uh, I'm an independent voter, but. You know, this sort of FBI out of control thing happened just a few years back. Uh, it, it was referred to in the news as the Trump-Russia collusion case. Mm. And it turns out after uh, the government did two major investigations of this whole thing that the Clinton campaign actually paid for and created this concept and then got the FBI agents to buy in to this uh, phony called the Steele dossier. So then the FBI agents in this fake case went to what's called the FISA courts. Those are the courts that give you permission to secretly spy on Americans. 
and without them knowing and without them being able to go to court and say, why are you spying on me? Huh. And so they took this false, knowingly false information, and they um, provided sworn affidavits to the court saying, you know, this is totally true, and we need to spy on the Trump campaign. So the purpose, obviously, was to, by the Clinton campaign, was in the hopes that it would help discredit Trump so he would lose the election. When he won the election, the government, again, used the FBI's phony case to um, start an impeachment against Trump for Trump-Russia collusion. And so after about these, after these two very lengthy and expensive government investigations, they found out that the FBI had acted inappropriately. Some of them were fired. And I just read a report, CNN recently reported that the Clinton campaign was actually fined, a, a huge fine by the, uh, I guess the FEC uh, over the whole Trump collusion fake dossier thing so uh, you have you have fbi agents kind of going rogue even today and so i guess it could happen again because it, wow. it has well, yeah i thought that was very interesting how you found the i guess it was maybe the original letter that sparked that that was written right. to rfk from a, a concerned parent yeah it's interesting too that that i mean rfk did the right thing his job is okay, there may be a violation here uh, under certain laws, obscenity laws, if this is true. And so he sent it to the FBI to investigate. But all the chapter's great because I, I got a hold of all the um, Freedom of Information Act records of the FBI, which uh, was over 100 pages, I believe. And you could see what kind of a crazy clown show they did. And they, you know, they kept playing the record backwards, playing it at different speeds, playing it with headphones on, imagine that. Uh, and, you know, they never could discern really what the singer was saying. And, you know, to me, it was so hilarious because before the lead singer of that recording died, I was lucky enough to interview him maybe like only three months before he passed away. And I said, so because they, you know, they were looking at all these schoolyard ideas of what the lyrics were, you know, for the, the dad had gotten the, the dad who wrote to RFK uh, had gotten these lyrics from his daughter who brought him home from school. And uh, several, I've talked to several rock and rollers who, who remember trading versions of lyrics in school. And they, they just, um, worked off of that but they could never prove what the lyrics really were and the, i asked the lead singer and he goes i just took the same lyrics as the ones by the guy that wrote the song and sang it and those lyrics are very harmless they're about like a a sailor who's sad because he has to sail away and he misses his girlfriend and you know that's as that's as crazy as those lyrics get Yet um, the FBI never bothered to interview this guy. Yeah, that's so, really surprising to me. I thought they really had a tunnel mm -hmm. vision on this. It was such a strange case. Yeah, three years of investigating all over the country, 
they interviewed other members of, of the band who didn't, you know, sing the vocals. <laughs> uh, wow. And those people said, no, it was just, you know, it's just we're singing the regular lyrics, but they never bothered to talk to the guy that um, sang it. And they also didn't really talk to the guy much who uh, produced the song. So it was very strange. Yeah, that's a fascinating chapter. And I feel like every chapter could be a book. So you have to streamline your process and um, make a chapter rather than a whole book on these things. So um, what is your process for researching and then writing um, a book like this that covers a lot of different artists in one volume? Well, I think I usually outline, you know, once I've picked a story and thought, yeah, I think I can, I think I can get to the bottom of this one. I usually outline it and, and figure out what do I know about this story already that I, that is provable and factual and what don't I know? And then once I figure out what I don't know, I then say, well, what, what could help me find out this information? Do I need a certain document? Do I, you know, and in the case of the FBI and Louie Louie, I needed to find the uh, Freedom of Information Act records. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of did the CIA kill Bob Marley, I had to again find the Freedom of Information Act records and the uh, government wouldn't give them to me. Really? Neither Obama nor Trump would give me those records. So I got on the phone to Colonel Oliver North. I just oh, call wow. any, and, and I said, you were national security advisor to Ronald Reagan, right? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, where are these supposed classified documents uh, of the CIA and Bob Marley from 76? And he said, oh, I talked to President Ford about that because he was president before Reagan. And he said, those, those have been declassified. He said they should have sent those to you. I said, well, they're both. They both sent the same letter that said we can neither confirm nor deny whether we have any records about the CIA and Bob Marley. I said that's pretty fishy. Yeah. He said, yeah. You know, he said you'd have to file a lawsuit. I said, well, I'm not going to do that. And he said, well, and this is pretty funny coming from him. He said, have you heard of this website called WikiLeaks? You'll find them there. <laughs> and sure. I was able to find those records and those records then led me to CIA agents who were down there in Jamaica trying to overthrow the prime minister because he was a socialist and our government wanted a conservative in there, a capitalist in there. And um, I was then, and they, they all had secret names. And so these documents told me who, you know, what their fake titles were as, you know, assistant to the ambassador, but then it also listed their real name and their, their real title with the CIA. So again, I just Googled, got on the phone with one of these FBI agents and said, Hey, I need to talk to you about what really happened with Bob Dylan. And, and uh, he said, you could talk to me, but I don't want my real name known. And I said, okay, why is that? You know, I said, you don't work for the CIA anymore. He goes, Oh, even when you're done with the CIA, you still have to worry about the CIA. So I had to change his name. But, uh, you know, so I go through recordings. I go I go interview people, whoever they are, wherever they are, as long as I can find them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and it's sometimes you get very lucky in the uh, case of the Charles Manson case. 
I needed to find a guy named Greg Jacobson. I had heard that he was in the room with Dennis Wilson and Charles Manson when they discussed ownership of Manson's song, the one that became the issue of the chapter, Did the Beach Boys Steal a Song from Manson? And as a lawyer, you have to first gather all the facts and then apply those facts to whatever the law says about who owns a copyright and how they become the owner of a copyright. So I couldn't find this guy because he's still hiding out because, you know, because he testified against Manson in the murder trial. So he's vanished. I found a little blurb on like page 10 of Google that said that he had done a project with Taylor Hawkins, the former, the late drummer of the Foo Fighters. Oh, okay. So, so I called Butch Vig, my friend, a longtime friend who produced the Foo Fighters and Nirvana, et cetera, and said, can you call Taylor Hawkins and tell him that I need Greg Jacobson's phone number. <laughs> and five minutes later, thanks to Taylor, uh, I was able to get a hold of Greg and find out exactly what happened. So you, sometimes you get very lucky. Yeah, you have to dig deep. Not many people look beyond page one or two of Google searches. That's for sure. Well, you have another book out now, uh, The Beetle Who Vanished. So this, right. is, this is news to me also. So what can you tell us about that book? Well, that book is another 100% true story, nonfiction. And uh, The Beetle Who Vanished is really the first historical account of Jimmy Nickel, who was a, basically an unknown drummer in the 60s, uh, playing in London with bands and recording a little bit in the studio. And this is his journey from very humble beginnings to actually saving The Beatles' first world tour uh, because Ringo Starr went into the hospital less than 24 hours before the Beatles' first ever world tour. And nowadays, when someone gets sick, in fact, we read about it all the time, uh, you know, uh, Aerosmith's lead singer is out, so the tour is postponed. No one worries about it. Nowadays, there, there are clauses and contracts that allow for illness, and there are clauses that allow for insurance to cover any financial losses to the promoter or to the band or whoever in the case of a health issue. But back in the mid 60s, most of these contracts were less than a page long for the Beatles to appear somewhere. And they didn't take into account the band not showing up. And that's where you had that expression back in the olden days the show must go on. And so with Ringo down in the hospital with tonsillitis, they had less than 24 hours, the Beatles and their manager, Brian Epstein, to find someone to replace Ringo Starr uh, until he could get back and rejoin the tour. So Jimmy Nickel, uh, I explained how he got to be chosen and, and what he did in his career to lead up to the point to being one of the people considered. Then I take him through his 13 days of fame, which made headlines as he toured with the Beatles before uh, Ringo came back. But the true mystery of his story, Jimmy Nichols' story, uh, as I put it in the book, is um, riddled with blacklisting, betrayal, drugs, divorce, bankruptcy, and an eventual disappearance that led many to question whether he is dead or alive. 
Huh, that is a fascinating story. I'm going to dive into that one next. Now, are you Great. working on another book now? I am. I sort of go back and forth. Uh, I alternate, but, you know, one book will be about the Beatles and the next book will be about rock and roll. For example, before The Beatle Who Vanished, I wrote a book called Nevermind Nirvana, which was the behind the scenes story of how how that great album was made and why it became the most important rock album of the 90s. But the next one is really a, uh, a mystery about a guitar made in the 1950s. And it supposedly has a connection to John Lennon while he was a teenager and was in a pre-Beatles group called Johnny and the Moondogs. And this guitar was found up in an attic in 1996 by some workmen in Liverpool. Luckily, a lot of John Len Lennon's musical friends and girlfriends and whatnot are still alive. And so, and, and in fact, John's half sister, Julia Baird is still alive. So I've been interviewing a lot of these people. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research on the guitar itself, when it was made. Uh, there's also a a period of time where John was witnessed stealing a guitar from a musical competition. Oh, wow. And, and so there are questions of, well, is this guitar that was stashed in his old uh, childhood home attic, is this the one that was stolen or is that different? So a lot of little details that I have to look into, but I think it'll make for an interesting uh, another mystery that I'm hoping to solve. Oh, absolutely. That sounds great. Well, we've come to the end of our talk here. So I have to ask you my standard closing question, which is what is your own rock and roll nightmare? <laughs> well, I've given that some thought. I have to say the one that popped into my head right away was I was invited by the Beatles company, Apple Corps, to attend the premiere of the Cirque du Soleil Love Show in Vegas. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2006. So uh, before the show, we were upstairs. My wife said, and I don't, you know, we're getting dressed, you know, getting all fancied up for this big show and the red carpet and all that. And my wife says, now, no geeking out on the Beatles tonight. You've met some of these people before. It, they're just humans. <laughs> I, said, I said, I know. I said, well, what about a picture? No asking for pictures, no autographs. Don't be cool. All right. I said, all right, I'll be cool. After the show, the Beatles had this wonderful VIP after party. And uh, I thought I had died and gone to heaven getting invited to that. So we're hanging out and Paul McCartney walks by. I didn't even like make a move. And my wife's like, well, you should go over and say hi to him. You know, tell him you enjoyed the show. And Because I, I, this is a show that I had done audio research for. That's why I was there. I don't want to bother him. She goes, go over and talk to him. So I said, all right. So I went over. I had a nice little chat with Paul and told him what I had done, told him how much I enjoyed the show. And we had met before. And, uh, and then he went on his way. Little bit later, we came up upon uh, Jim Keltner, who um, many of your listeners will know has played sessions and concerts for the, all of the greatest people in classic rock history. He was also the traveling Wilburys drummer and solo drummer for John Lennon, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, etc. Uh, Jim and I have known each other for a long time, so 
Jim and his wife, Cynthia, and my wife, Holly, and I were having this nice chat. Then uh, Holly was talking with Cynthia, and then Jim turned to greet someone that was coming up to us at this party. And, you know, good-looking guy with long hair. I didn't recognize him at first, so they're talking. So I'm just kind of standing there. Ringo walks by. I go, hi, Ringo. Tony Bennett walks by. Hi, Tony. <laughs> None of these people know me, but that's all right. But I'm showing my wife how cool I am. <laughs> all of a sudden, Jim Keltner says, oh, I'm sorry, Jim. I need to introduce you. Uh, Jim, this is John Densmore. John, this is Jim Birkenstad. And I said, hi, John. And I said, wait, you're John Densmore of the Doors? And John Densmore said, wait, you're the Jim Birkenstad? So <laughs> that, that, of course, was somewhat nightmarish because my wife stared daggers at me. But once once John Densmore came out with your Jim Birkenstad, it cracked me up. It put me at ease. And I was able to have a really nice chat with him about the doors. And later I was able to tell my wife, you told me I couldn't geek out on the Beatles, but you never told me that I couldn't geek out on the doors. Oh, there you go. You found a loophole. Found a loophole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Jim, where is the best place for fans to find and follow you online and your books on facebook jim birkenstadt i also have a facebook page called rock and a and d role detective if you're interested in downloading free excerpts of mysteries in the music you can go to musicmysterybook.com if you want a free excerpt of the beetle who vanished see if you like it that website is thebeetlewhovanished.com. On Instagram, I'm at rock and roll detective. And my main website is rockandrolldetective.com. That's super simple. And I highly recommend that people read both of those books. And I look forward to your next one. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me on, Stacey. I really enjoyed it. And, and great questions. <laughs> Thank you. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. <laughs>